0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 12 through 18, and uh, I'm excited to read the Word of God to you and then to, to preach it, so follow along with me. Paul says, beginning in verse 12, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Father, um, Father, I ask that you would uh, come and be present among us by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we recognize that we are um, living among a generation that is dark and perverse, that is crooked and is twisted. Lord, we, we see the images uh, everywhere around us. <coughs> so God, what we need is we need <clears throat> you to come and speak. or we need you to come and speak to our hearts. Lord, we, we know that our, as we walk in this morning that uh, we, we could be in, in various different places of despair, or anger, or hurt, or or just oblivious. So Father, we need Your Spirit to come and speak through the preaching of Your Word. Lord, come and speak to us in a way that You would provoke us, or that You would wake us up out of our slumber, that You would bring peace at the same time to those of us who have hearts that are full of turmoil and conflict, that you would speak a word of comfort to those of us who are afflicted, speak a word of healing to those of us who are sick, a word of invitation to those of us who are living in outright rebellion and, and war against you, an invitation to come and to find rest and peace and salvation in your presence, God, that there's so many things that we need you to speak into us and we trust and know that you are powerful and that your word has a purpose and so we ask God that you would come and do what none of us in this room are actually able to do which is to speak in a way that sets captives free Father we beg you to do this work and more ask Father personally that you would take the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would sanctify them, cleanse them, purify them Cause them, Father, to do good to your people and to bring glory to, to, to yourself. I trust you to do just that this morning. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. 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 You may be seated. As we dive into uh, thinking about this text and, um, and asking the Lord to speak to us. Uh, I, I wanted to try to ask some questions on the front edge that might um, cause your heart and your mind to kind of head in the direction that I think uh, the Holy Spirit uh, wants to speak to us through this passage. And so, the um, question I want to ask is, um, what is it that gets your blood boiling? Like, like what, what, what is it uh, that gets you angry? What, what, what does it take to get under your skin? Like, what lights your fuse? What, what sets you off? What makes you uh, complain? Uh, wh- wh- what gets you into a place where uh, you would be so provoked that you would jump into a fruitless argument, whether that be on, on social media or with your family members or with some friend or somebody in the grocery store for that matter? What is it that would cause you to jump at the bait? You see, as Christians, we are called by God, through the writing of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, right, we're called to let our manner of life as citizens of heaven be worthy of the gospel, according to verse 27 of chapter 1. You do a brief scan of Romans chapter 12, uh, you find a few things that I've highlighted. Uh, We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to love one another with brotherly affection. We're to bless those who persecute us. Interesting, that, that's one that we, we miss quite often, right? We're supposed to bless those who persecute us rather than cursing them. And, and listen, it doesn't just mean like actual profane curse language. It means the kind of language that we use that kind of places a curse on someone, right? Um, not in a witchcraft type of way, but one that demeans someone or puts them down. So we're called to bless people, not curse them. And um, in Romans 12, so far as it depends on us, we're to live peaceably with all. I think about these um, instructions in God's Word paired with what we've read here in Philippians and and Paul's desire, God's command to let our manner of life as citizens of heaven be worthy of the gospel. You pair these things together in context. Um, I find that this seems to be a tall order. Seems to be a very tall order in our day and age. And I often catch myself, I don't know, you might do this too, if you talk to yourself like I do. I often catch myself asking myself... um, like, hey, what, what part of these instructions do I not understand, right? Now, while we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, according to verse 15 of chapter 2, I find it very difficult to not let things get under my skin, um, to not let my fuse get lit up like a stick of dynamite. Not go off at the slightest hint of uh, any kind of provocation. To not be overwhelmed by a complaining spirit. To not possess an argumentative attitude. I find these things to be hard. Now, to be honest, I find lots of things hard about the day and age that we live in. But if I'm going to follow the instruction of this passage... Today, that we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, then what I find more hard than all of the craziness in our world right now is my response and reaction to the craziness of this world. Oftentimes, what I want to do is go to the comfortable place of focusing all the craziness in the world rather than dealing with my reaction to the craziness in the world. I find these things hard in this day and age. Now just to be clear, um, so that uh, you don't begin thinking something different about what I'm saying, so that Satan has no place to get in and try to misconstrue what I'm saying to you. I firmly believe that we are living in a culture right now, I don't think it's any different than other times, but I think right now it seems obvious that we live in a culture where the prophet Isaiah would say, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The bottom line here in what I'm saying is that I, I think we all know, I think we would all agree that the world around us is a spinning out of control, right? The world we live in is erupting at a chaotic rate. Here are some of the ways that that's happening. Babies being murdered in the womb on a daily basis, racial and ethnic and political tensions erupting out of the deep wounds of past and present sinful and evil desires, minority people groups, along with the poor and the disenfranchised, I believe in our nation and across the world since the beginning of time, often exploited by the rich and the powerful for personal and political gain. Uh, The quote-unquote sexual revolution uh, that we're living in at the moment, it's been going on for a long time. This looks different with each generation. That sexual revolution that we're living in the midst of um, is normalizing and celebrating lifestyles and behaviors that God says are not only offensive to Him and are not only sinful acts of rebellion and war against Him, but are also destructive to the well-being of individuals in any familial society. We've been watching in, uh, in heartbreak, um, horror, oftentimes anger, as cities get burned, as people get murdered on our television screens senselessly. And in my humble opinion... The powers that be are just simply capitalizing on these atrocities at the expense of younger generations for the advancement of their own self-centered agenda. That's what I think. That's what I think we're living in. Not hard, I don't think, um, to see that we are living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, uh, just like the Philippian church was that Paul is writing to. So you think about the Philippian church for a minute, so that we can make the connection. Uh, The cultural mindset in uh, Philippi was a Roman mindset. So I'm not going to go on a a large history lesson here. Just briefly though, um, like the Romans, uh, the people in Philippi um, were infatuated with a few things that you might find has an interesting connection to where we're at today. Um, Three things that I'll mention that the Romans were... um, Infatuated with uh, was self-expression, uh, self-gratification, and self-advancement. You find that anywhere, and you could be like Joe, You can find it just about any culture. Sure, this was a this was a culture that was founded on that, um, self-expression, self-gratification, and self-advancement. And there is one identifying factor of those three things that ties all them together. It's the word that comes before each of those dual words. Compound words, I think? <laughs> no, probably not even comp- compound words. I won't even argue about that. Self. Self ties all those together, right? Um, self-expression, self-gratification, self-advancement at any cost. Now, This culture in Philippi, the Roman culture there, they, they loved exploring uh, what we would call an all roads leads to heaven kind of spirituality. It was called uh, Hellenism. So they would explore that kind of a spirituality. That was the culture they lived in, while at the same time they were would practice um, some of the most um, sexually devious and, um, and, and and some of the some of the some of the worst witchcraft um, that you can conceive of. So the, this was the Philippian culture. Again, I, I don't really think it's much different than the American culture we live in today. Really, the culture in Philippi, if you were a Christian there, would have given you ample reason to lose your cool, would have given you ample reason to engage in a culture war, would have given you ample reason to cozy up with powerful political leaders, ample reason to complain about everything that was going wrong, ample reason to argue about what needed to be done to make things right. So the, the culture in Philippi, um, I, like the one that we live in currently, I think is basically a powder keg getting ready to explode. And I don't want you to forget this either. One last little tidbit of history on the, on the Roman culture um, at the time of the writing of this letter to Philippians, um, that Roman empire uh, imploded roughly 49 years after the letter, um, this letter was written. So I think Paul, um, obviously carried along by the Holy Spirit, um, inspired by God to write what he writes. We must remember that he's writing into a culture that is on a downward spiral. Even though a lot of people would tell you, "Oh no, we're doing great and we're free. We're celebrating all sorts of freedom." <clears throat> so. Philippian culture, I think, is headed towards self-destruction. What Paul wants is he wants for the believers in Philippi to shine as lights in the world, according to verse 16 of the chapter we're looking at. Um, Here's what Paul doesn't ask them to do. He does not ask them to rebuild the culture. He does not ask them to transform the culture, though these are not necessarily bad things. Please don't mischaracterize me. Just simply saying, he does not ask them to do so. He commands them to shine as lights in the world. But the question is, how does Paul expect the Philippian believers to do this? How are they supposed to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? Four things... um, and when we get to number three, just so you know, we'll buckle in, we'll spend a bunch of time on number three. But number one, um, I think what we can see in the text is that we are to begin with the right foundation. Okay? That's, a, that's an easy principle to accept for us. Begin with the right foundation, right? Uh, if the foundation isn't right, then what's going to happen? The, the house is going to crumble. And the Apostle Paul knows this, so what does he do? He, he reminds the Philippians that Jesus Christ is the foundation and the chief cornerstone of the church. And he does this, he reminds them of this with one single word. Somebody say, what's that word? what's that word? Good, good job. You guys are tracking. That one single word is the word therefore in verse 12. And whenever we see the word therefore, what do we need to ask? What's the therefore Therefore, right? So you ask that question, and the answer here is that word, therefore. It's therefore the purpose of pointing us back to the foundation that the Apostle Paul just built in his grand description of the self-humiliation and super-exaltation of Christ. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks. You see, here's the thing. The high theology of Christ's humility, on the one hand, In verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2, right alongside this high theology of Christ's exaltation in verses 9 through 11, both of those put together what they act like, what they should act like in our hearts and lives. They should act like a bone-crushing, meat-tenderizing hammer. What they should act like in our lives. They should be like a meat-tenderizing hammer to our self-centeredness and our pride, because that's been the theme that Paul has been in. Till now, as he shifts gears, as he shifts gears, he wants us to receive some ground-level, very practical instruction for living our lives as saved citizens of heaven in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You see, if the foundation for our living as shining lights in a crooked and twisted world, if it's anything less than Jesus, might I add parenthetically that it would be really good for Christians to spend some time thinking about the cultural Jesus we believe in. And don't just think that because you follow Jesus for longer than 15 minutes that somehow you got it right because you got the Spirit, by golly it might be really good for all of us to continuously listen to the words of Jesus and continuously examine Jesus, how he interacts with the poor, how he interacts with the disenfranchised, and who his enemies actually are, because his enemies are really good Christian people, so to speak. We've got to remember that. So, it would be good for us to remember that if our foundation is anything less than the biblical Jesus. And what's going to happen is the house of our holiness is going to crumble. And you'll have this fake false holiness, which is what the Pharisees were guilty of, and the Sadducees, and the Essenes, and the Zealots, the four major political religious leaders in the Gospels. That's what they were guilty of. That's why they couldn't accept Christ, why they crucified him. But the bottom line here is that we must begin with the foundation of Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ returning again if we are going to have any hope of shining as lights in the world. The second thing we notice in the text is that we are be, to be obedient to the gospel. So you might write that down. We are to be obedient to the gospel. It should be on the screen for you here in a moment. We are to be obedient to the gospel. Now, obedience to the gospel um, means not only receiving salvation, which is basically eternal assurance of heaven, right? The, your, your get out of um, the burning, fiery pit of hell card, you know, when, when you're on death's bed, you can pull that card out and be like, I don't have to burn, I get to go there. Okay, it's that. It's not just that. Problem is that the church has castrated the gospel and made it just that. Made the gospel really small. Obedience to the gospel means not only receiving that salvation, that eternal assurance of heaven, but it is also growing in sanctification. This is the concept of increasing in holiness as we travel towards heaven. This is why the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, I love the personal um, language he uses, the, the emotional, You are my beloved, I love you. As you have always obeyed, there's a, a word that we don't like. As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. I Meaning, hey, y'all should have some integrity, right? Not just when you're in front of me, but when I'm not there too. <laughs> Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the principle here simply, because we don't have time to deal with every nuance of what Paul is saying there, is that we are to be obedient to the gospel as we strive to grow in holiness by the grace and power of God. Now, Philippians 1.6, you may remember that. For some of us, that's like our favorite passage in the whole wide world because it's good. It's a good reminder. Philippians 1.6 really kind of comes alongside of what Paul is saying here in um, these verses, in verses 12 and 13, really comes alongside of that because it reminds us of this. This is what Philippians 1.6 says. It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, so you lay that alongside of what we're reading here in these verses, and we are reminded that God is the one who is at work inside of us. And if you believe that, and if you know that you have the spirit of the lion, of the tribe of Judah living inside of you, now you have can have the confidence to give close attention to, to your personal conduct as you actually live out your salvation in Christ. Any time that I meet someone, or any time that I struggle in my own life with sin, it's because I have discounted or ignored the fact that I have the Lion of the tribe of Judah working in me to complete the project that he began, and that Father, that God, that Lion of the tribe of Judah, he doesn't leave a job undone. And since he doesn't do that, I then have the confidence to pull up my bootstraps and grow in holiness. The work that God takes pleasure in doing inside of us is the work of transforming our will and transforming our work. I don't know what it says in the text. He's transforming our will, which is our desires and our decisions, He's transforming our work, which would be our behaviors, our works, the things we do, the ways we behave, the ways we live, the ways we act. It is God's pleasure to transform both the way you think and the way you decide and the things you desire and the way you live. James would come alongside of this and say, tell me all about your faith all day long. Yap, 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 all day long, all you want. I want to see the fruit of that in your life. Talk about faith, if there's no holy action, you got no faith, right? That's James very straightforward. Here's the thing, when we consistently grapple with the truths of the gospel, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ returning, then what happens as you continue to grapple with that, you, I am at least, I believe this would happen with you too, most of you would, would probably come alongside of this and agree with it, that as we contemplate the gospel more, day in and day out, then what happens is we are compelled to work out our own salvation. You're not working for your salvation, you are saved, therefore you work. You don't work to get saved. You work because you are saved. Okay? When we consistently grapple with those truths, we're compelled to work out that salvation in fear and trembling at the thought of what? What would cause you to be afraid and to tremble and to actually think about the working out of your own salvation? Well, I think it would be the thought of God's grace and mercy in the cross the empty tomb, and our heavenly inheritance. So in short, if, if we truly believe the gospel for salvation, then what's going to happen? We're going to consistently become obedient to the gospel in our day-to-day lives. So that's number two. Number three, we're going to spend some time on this one. We are to be blameless and innocent children. Now, this is an important, kind of the crux of the text, so to speak, that we're in. We are to be blameless and innocent children. What kind of image does that conjure up in your mind when you think of a blameless and innocent child? Write that down. That picture of a blameless and innocent child. Who is that for you? See, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this, he does not want to leave this concept of obedience uh, to mere speculation, Okay? Uh, we, we are good at speculation. We are, we are good at trying to rewrite the story and, and flip the script. And, and Paul, uh, God in his providence through Paul, who was pretty wise and great at writing, doesn't want to leave this concept of obedience to speculation. Uh, the reality is God's not an abusive God. God doesn't come and beat you up for being disobedient and then not tell you how you can be obedient. Okay. So makes things very practical. Here's what he says. Verses 14 through 16. Look at him with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Interesting. Um, you know what the, the, the Greek says here in this, in this section? This, this part I just read, you want to know what it says? Let me tell you. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Catch that? That you may be blameless. So what's it, What's going to make you a blameless, innocent child of God? What's going to be the proof of that? Uh, you're doing all things without grumbling and disputing. Okay? So do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Something I'm not going to spend a lot of time on as we work our way through. This would be that last phrase where Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. not spending a bunch of time on it because I don't think it would be fruitful for us, but I just want to point out that Paul actually does say, hey, um, for me, as your pastor who planted the church, I don't want to live in a way where I feel the despair of, man, did everything that I preach and everything that I did and all the labor I did among you, was it in vain? Was it worthless? Was it no good? He's saying, walk this way so that I might feel the benefit of the fruit of my labor among you. End all that. Come back to the main point. The main point is that we are to be blameless and innocent children. Now, the interesting thing about these verses that, you, um, that we just read, um, is that you might find that portion about shining as lights in the world pasted everywhere in the Christian subcultural bubble. We have a bubble. We do have a subculture. And it's really fun to think about. You'll find that um, shining as lights in the world phrase all over Christian t-shirts, Christian social media pages, Christian coffee mugs, as though any of those inanimate objects can be saved and be called Christian in the first place, so I don't know, that's another conversation for another day. But as though uh, there is some kind of like pie in the sky, kind of, kind of a romantic ideal of like standing our ground and fighting for the truth of the gospel while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. It's kind of that mentality that comes out of the Christian subculture bubble, right? Of course, uh, the reality is that this kind of textual pillaging, and yes, I would stand on that have... A good time showing you why throughout Scripture. This kind of textual pillaging has been done since the Garden of Eden. God's word has consistently been taken out of context, misquoted, mischaracterized, and twisted, typically by those who would say they are Christian. We must remember that the, um, that the, the Satan, right, the enemy of God, uh, was at one time the worship leader, he's an angel of light. So it's been done since the Garden of Eden where God's words are taken out of context, distorted. Distorted to sound really appealing. I mean, it's an appealing message to me to be like, stand and fight and transform and change and rule over all God's enemies. Like, I'm a fighter. I'm still kind of a warrior deep down inside. You don't know that. You know that now. So that's appealing to me. The reality is God's word has been twisted from the beginning to make it sound better, more appealing. And what happens is you, you, you get a little bit of truth with a whole bunch of deception. And it's like taking a little bit of cyanide. And who in their right mind would do that anyways? And what happens is when God's word gets twisted like this, then you lose the original thrust and the power of the intended application for what God is saying. Unless we think that this only happened in the Gospels when the Pharisees and the Essenes and the rest of them got it wrong, this has been happening since the garden. I I said this last week. I think I laid this on pretty thick last week too, right? The reality though, um, when it comes to this passage, when speaking about... Obedience. We don't have to necessarily imagine um, what it might mean to live as a shining light in a dark and perverse world. God, God is very clear in this text right here that we can do this by not complaining or arguing. How about that? By not complaining or arguing. Problem is, is that we, um, we love to make excuses for ourselves, right? Why do we make excuses? Well, because we're redeemed, we're righteous. We, Got it. So, uh, since we're redeemed and we're righteous, well, we know what's okay to complain about. We, we know what's okay to argue about, even though God does say here, um, in the Greek as well as in the English, do all things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, the reality here is that it um, um, makes us really uncomfortable to admit that we sin when we complain and we argue. Rather than admitting actual sin inside of us, we, we wind up downplaying things. Uh, we duck and cover. Uh, we hide. We blame others. We excuse our sin. Uh, we, we dress it up with the lipstick of religious language, same as Adam and Eve. I mean, that, that kind of sin has permeated all of us. Is that, that's the doctrine of original sin, that all of us are infected with the sin of Adam. Adam. So make this a little bit heavier. Let me think about it this way. Complaining, which is grumbling, as Paul puts it. Um, complaining is basically reminiscent of what? What does it remind you of when you think of Israel's history? Okay? Complaining and grumbling. When you think of Israel's history, it's very reminiscent. It reminds us of Israel's whining and complaining in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16. And then the arguing, right? The, the disputing as Paul puts it. I really, when you think about that word, what it brings to mind, I think, to our English-speaking ears is this kind of a, a petty dialogue. It's a petty dialogue that calls everything into question. It's skeptical about everything. The reality here, though, is is that complaining and arguing, here, here's the way we oftentimes treat it. Complaining and arguing here, that they're not minor blemishes of morality or, or or like peripheral human weaknesses. These things are like, oh, they're just those are minor sins, right? We we have a tendency to treat them that way. And we're like, hey, those are just kind of minor things that are just a blemish on my otherwise pretty spectacular Christian life. Like I've done a pretty good job still walking with Jesus 20 years later. All right? We treat those things like minor things and we give them a pass. And might I say that Jesus still died on the cross for those sins? So to me it seems that. Those sins are just as serious and horrifying as any other. Yet homosexuality and murdering babies is worse than that. You follow me? That's the pride and the arrogance that bothers me. So here's the way the Christian conversation usually goes: Did you sin this week? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not very perfect, and I, I do, I sin, a, I sin a whole bunch, and, um, and, and God, and you got to forgive me. No, speci- no specificity whatsoever. That's called glossing it over. That's what that's called. Um, a specific confession of sin would be like, you know what, actually this, this week I, you lay out four or five things that you actually sinned in, right? Um, instead of doing that, because that's hard work. That's, that's hard work. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Christian church in America especially has done this for so long, has, has given a pass on this kind of false repentance, false confession, that we've created Christians in America that speak better constitutional language than prophetic language. Follow me? It's a concern. So, when we relegate grumbling and complaining arguing, disputing, when we relegate those down to minor blemishes of morality, peripheral human weaknesses in this otherwise, like, flawless Christian spectacle, um, oh, I think we forget that the reality is that these sins, I think these sins um, are a part of the watershed of the Christian life in reality. You think about this, critical complaining spirits, I think are the historic bane of the church, and, and I think they are a specifically bright stain on the modern, what, what one author calls McChurch worshipers who leave their church to go down the street to find the church more to their liking. Uh, the reality here is that those who persist in complaining and arguing, these folks are not obedient to Christ. They're not obedient to the gospel. In fact, they're openly rejecting the divine call to work out your own salvation that Paul gives us here. Complainers, arguers, disobedient to the gospel, these folks are undermining clear instruction for a gospel-centered church family's witness in a community. And here's the thing, if we were to become this church, if we were to become this church, if we were to persist in being that kind of people, then we need to understand this and own it well. Uh, When we finally do stand before our Savior, we're going to answer him with shame. The question here is this. Are you going to travel towards your heavenly promised land like Israel in the wilderness, complaining and arguing? Or are you going to travel towards your heavenly promised land like Israel in the conquest, confident of the victory that lies in front of you? See, here's the thing. Uh, the way of the world, the way of the world is to travel this highway, you might call it. You can play with the analogy any old way. You call it a dirt road if you want to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it this way. Uh, the world trains us, teaches us, shapes us, molds us into thinking that we should travel this highway of complaining and arguing. But here's the reality. The dirt road way or the back road way of Jesus is to speak truth and love. Is to sacrifice yourself for the good of others, especially your neighbors. And, and let's ask this question. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Oh, he's the one that you detest the most. That's your neighbor. So we we'll stop there. Who, who do you detest the most right now? Who are you upset the most at right now? I mostly think... That in this area, most of us more conservative-leaning Christians are really upset with the more liberal-leaning folks. That's, That's who have provoked us the most right now. And lest you walk out of here and say, no. Who is it that has provoked you to that point that you would say, man, I can't even treat that person in love? as they provoked you that far. See, so we're to speak the truth in love. We're to sacrifice ourselves for the good of our neighbors. And um, if you think about the way of Jesus, you're supposed to endure suffering in silence. Um, he was silent like a sheep before the shearers, right? Suffering silence. We find a hard time doing that. The church here, um, I think at least in some seasons, has become the cultural joke of a crooked and twisted generation. And and the church becomes the cultural joke of a crooked and twisted generation when she is known for her complaining and her arguing. Uh, This is the reason uh, that fear and trembling are the key to being blameless and innocent children. If you understand the message of the gospel, right, it creates a holy fear and trembling inside of you. Helps you to walk blamelessly. Helps you to walk innocently. See, living in humble harmony with one another. Um, considering others as more important than yourselves. And, and not, not just the people that are easy to consider as more important. It's the people that are really hard to consider as more important that we need to do this with, right? Helps us to shine. Helps us to shine resurrection light in a dark world as we hold fast to the hope of the gospel, the crucified, risen, and returning Christ here. The bottom line in all of this point is that God has called us to be blameless and innocent children who shine like lights in the midst of a dark and perverse world as we cling to the word of life with every ounce of spiritual energy inside of us. So we are to be blameless. We are to be innocent children who are obedient to the gospel. And the way that you get this done is simply by not complaining and not arguing in everything that you do. You might even find, practically speaking, that in the moment where you are tempted to, or the moment that you even go off complaining and arguing about things, might be a, uh, a moment for the Holy Spirit to say to you, hey, it doesn't honor my Father, it doesn't honor your Savior. So whether that builds the restriction on your life, or whether that just acts as a kind of come around the backside and kind of smack you a little bit, um, it should create a kind of a holiness in your walk as you walk with the Spirit. Fourth thing that we see in the text, fourth and final thing uh, we are to be partners in joyful ministry. The Apostle Paul concludes all of this practical instruction for shining his lights in the dark and perverse world by saying this. Final verses 17 through 18 says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, what what these final verses teach us is that our obedience to the gospel, on the one hand, uh, founded on the message of Christ's humility and exaltation, on the other, uh, which uh, results in our blameless and innocent conduct, all of that must be filled with joy. I'm not talking about the momentary happiness because you got something new. I'm talking about joy. Joy that overflows from deep down inside. It's, it's a way of life much more than it is a momentary thing. It doesn't mean you don't have hard days. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with depression or even anger or any of those things. But the default mode for you continuously comes back to joy. Now, one of the prayers I've been praying for quite a while is God restore to me the joy of my salvation in the midst of circumstances where there is no joy. Because at at the picture of the joy of my salvation, I'm reminded of who I am, who I was, who I'm going to be, and who God's always been. That's the message that continues to bring me back to a place of joy in the midst of circumstances that have no joy. Here's the reality. We are not... Called to travel through this life like grumpy old stooges with scowling looks on our faces. We're not. We're supposed to be filled with joy knowing that our sacrifice and our suffering in silence and our service in our community, that still pales in comparison with the cross that Jesus bore on our behalf. You see, when Paul calls the Philippians to joyful partnership in the ministry, he calls them, and I believe he's calling us to, a high calling in view of a high theology of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ crucified, risen, and returning in glory. So... By way of conclusion, I kind of want to wrap up this way um, and briefly. Um, and I studied this passage this week, and then I, I spent time um, just prayerfully considering all the truths that, that I learned in my study. And, um, and as I prayed my way through what, what I was learning and, and what God was saying, and as, as you know, I asked that question in prayer that we always ask, should ask at least, like, why does this matter? Right? What difference is this going to make? Is it just words I'm reading on a page or is there going to be some way that God wants to apply this to my life? Some way that God is calling me to not only obey but to believe? Um, as, I, as I asked that, I mean, I, I was just con, con, convicted. I convicted of my own propensity to complain and argue. I love to argue. So, as I surveyed the foundation of Christ's humility and exaltation, um, as I surveyed the the calling to be obedient to the gospel, as I surveyed this calling to be blameless and innocent, as I surveyed the calling to be uh, partners in joyful ministry, I was reminded of this once again, reminded that Christ was perfect where I am really imperfect. I specifically tell you stories of uh, places where I have biffed every one of these principles. Jesus faced the humility of the cross on my behalf when I was a rebellious enemy of his. He he walked in complete and perfect gospel-centered obedience before I even had the opportunity to mess things up. He was absolutely blameless and innocent. Yet he died a criminal's death for me. As for joyful ministry is concerned, it's a passage you guys hear me quote often because i can't find any other perfect example other than Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame to pay my ransom is now seated exalted at the right hand of the father in heaven see when i when i survey these principles in their totality from philippians 2:12 through 18 I, and then i and i and i survey the gospel inside and alongside that Like, I'm just kind of left wondering, like, what do I actually have to complain and argue about? Like, Really, what do I have to complain and argue about? I didn't carry a cross. But I'm called to. And and carrying a cross, let's just say this too. Carrying a cross is not a picture of uh, cultural defiance. (laughs) Carrying a cross is a picture of death yourself just get that out of the way and get that straight okay it's like your employer tells you you can't wear your cross necklace to work you're not being persecuted you're not for you to actually carry your cross in that moment would be to find a way to sacrificially serve that employer not go to war against that employer okay What do we actually have to complain or argue about? When I remember that Jesus did all of these things perfectly for me, what I'm encouraged and empowered to do is to live my life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as I shine like a light in a crooked and twisted generation. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah lives inside of me. The question is, does he live inside of you? That's the personal application for us, I think. How are you going to journey through life? Like Israel mumbling and complaining and arguing, or like Israel in the conquest, knowing that your victory is already settled, that your inheritance has already been given to you. The way that I get there is I find myself kneeling at the foot of a bloody cross, doorway of an empty tomb, holding on to the promise of heaven. And when I when I take myself there, when I when I consistently go there, and I find myself free. Truly free. Not free because a politician told me I'm free. Not free because the country I live in. Free. Free from my sinful desires to complain and argue in everything. The question is would you join me there at the foot of the cross? the door of the empty tomb, holding on to the hope of the promise of heaven. Pray that you would. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of preaching it here today. Ask, Father, that you would come and minister to our hearts over the next few moments. Help us recognize places where um, we're hurting and where you, the only healer, can come and heal those hurts and wounds. Help us to recognize places where we've been walking in rebellion. Come and rebuke us and, and draw us to you. Lord, help us to find a rest and refreshment at the foot of the cross, foot of the bloody cross. Door of the empty tomb. Hope of heaven. I trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.